0: okay once again welcome to service today we have some new faces so we'll get to know your names later my name is Max and I want to welcome you to Sheep gift Fellowship today it's uh, once again February 20th 2022 hopefully all of you are well and doing bright and sunny like the weather um I know we had some snow and some cold weather this past week so hopefully um you know it didn't affect you too much uh very confident I hate shoveling at this point Uh, hopefully those of you who don't live in a house you guys are blessed and uh, you should know that as we continue our sermon series we're going to be looking at the final five verses of uh, the 12th chapter so those of you who haven't followed along with us so far or maybe you're just jumping right into what we're learning today could be a little bit difficult, so maybe just glance over the contents of the first 26 verses of the 12th chapter, but look at verses 27 to 31 with me at this moment, Uh, so let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12, 27 to 31, short passage today, and uh, we'll briefly go over the text, and there's a couple things we need to pick out and explain to you as we go into our exegesis, so let's read verses 27 to 31, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll read from my Bible. And you can certainly follow in yours. This is the word of God. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and miracles and gifts of healings, helps, ministrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. Amen. This is the word of God. Seems a little repetitive. I know in some Bibles there might be slight variance in terminology that is used in the translation. But it all means the same thing. So we'll get to that and we'll get to our understanding of what those terms mean mean let's uh pray as we go into the word of god but i want to first share with you our unreached people group of the day and our sister joy would certainly know where this country is armenia what is the capital i'm <laughs> just kidding um and they are the azari or the azari of armenia and there are 15,000 of these people they are mainly muslim community in fact they're a fully islamic community uh none of them are christian so 15,000 people in this people group we want to pray for them Uh, If you don't know where they are on a map, uh, you can certainly look that up in your free time. So the Azeri of Armenia. And uh, moving a little bit north, uh, west of where we are, or at least west of Armenia, we're going to be looking at Ukraine right now and the situation that's happening with the border. Um, Just everything that's happening with Russia. I think this morning there were some uh, shellings and bombings uh, in an area where Russian troops are currently stationed and you know on the russian side it's always we're just training we're not doing anything Uh, but invasions could and feels imminent Um, and whatever the case may be with political you know tensions that maybe are a little bit foreign to us we would still want to pray for the people there and the safety of innocent lives and citizens there uh, and the church of ukraine right and how they are going to be a voice for christ amidst difficult times as well as the church of russia let's pray together Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for the gift of grace, your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, that we could gather so freely this day, this hour to worship, to learn, and to read your word. We pray that 1 Corinthians 12, 27-31, contained within, would be a powerful word to our souls and our hearts this day. Father, we pray for the Azeri of Armenia. We pray for their salvation. We pray for reaching out to this community, these men and women who don't know Truth of Jesus, we pray that they would come to know, and they would come to believe, and follow Christ in dedication and in sacrifice to Him in the lives that they live. Lord, we also pray for uh, what's happening in Ukraine right now, as tensions rise with Russia and uh, the international community is responding. Um, from the human perspective, it could seem, at least from a distance, like war is imminent. But we ask, O oh Lord, that now that wouldn't be the case, as we don't desire to see lives lost. But Lord, we'd rather see resolution so for the political leaders involved there is a resolution that could be made we also pray for the church in both ukraine and russia and surrounding regions uh, that they would be the voice of truth a voice of gospel a herald and proclaimer of jesus amidst all situations we ask o lord that people will find refuge and strength and comfort and hope and joy in the lord amen Alright, so, um, I'm excited to be here with all of you today. Don't really express that every week, so I just wanted to let you know I am quite excited to be with you on a weekly basis. Today's sermon is entitled, God Has Appointed. God Has Appointed comes straight from the text as we see God's sovereignty and providence over the distribution as well as, you know, just the nature of the gifts themselves, right? What they are, where they come from, and to whom they are given, now, allow me to remind you of Paul's overarching thought in the entire section of text found in verse 4, chapter 12, verse 4. Let me read. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. So, two weeks ago, we looked at that, right? That there is unity in the diversity of the gifts. Paul has instructed thus far in his argument in chapter, in chapter 12 that although there is a diversity of gifts that exists within the body of Christ, which is obvious, obviously apparent, The body, in fact, as we looked at last week, is still one, right? There's a diversity, but it stems from the unity. Each member of the body, like that of the Trinity, if you remember, Paul appeals to the nature of the Godhead himself as a unique and distinct role for each member, yet a unified substance, a unified body. So each member has, like that of the Trinity, a unique and distinct role. Each member contributes and partakes to the whole, the body of Christ, by fulfilling or playing a part that is dictated by God. God appoints those things. Not one gift is greater than another on the premise of their nature alone because the source is the same. And, of course, you know that You know the crux of the argument here or the issue is that the Corinthians were saying, hey, I have the gift of tongues, so I'm better than you because I'm more spiritually powerful or like higher status, right? So they're using these gifts as sort of like, I know it sounds stupid like to us today in a modern context, but they're using these gifts as like a social status symbol, right? To us today, we wouldn't do this. But back then, right, in a much more spiritual context, this was the case. So they're kind of boasting of their own gifts, and they're using them in their nature to claim higher status above others. That source or origin, of course, of all the gifts is the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, who dictates and distributes the gifts as the lord wills and the purpose behind that distribution of variety of these variety of gifts is for the common good you remember that verse it's all of these things paul wrote is for the common good and we define what common good means the building up and edification of the church within as well as for the good of others as these gifts are used for the sake of witnessing christ so it's used within the church to edify used outside of the church to witness Christ. We see examples, of course, in Acts 1 and 2. All this to say that all the gifts serve the Lord, for He has granted them to us. Paul has also taught that our diversity is an outcome of our unity. Our unity in Christ as His body is what dictates the variety and scope of gifts in the church. Not all are alike, right? Not all are like one another, in each other's giftings but all are alike in this sense in pursuit and importance in terms of uh, their partaking in the body of Christ so our pursuit of Christ and being like him and our importance in terms of our contribution and membership in that body therefore a diverse our diversity as a church is to be celebrated right? it's to be celebrated this is what we talked about last week for it in turn What does it celebrate when we celebrate our diversity we argued last week it in turn celebrates our unity this final paragraph in chapter 12 sums up all that precedes it it gives closure and yet it leads into the famous chapter 13 and if you've been to a wedding right if you've been to any wedding and maybe you're too young at this point your friends are just dating uh later they will get married i know that sounds creepy but they're gonna get married and the pastor will go up there and like nine times out of ten, every wedding will quote 1 Corinthians 13, right? Uh, and when we get there next week, you'll see why. You'll be like, oh, I know that passage. I've heard that a million times, right? It's the classic theme verse for a retreat, classic verse for a wedding, right? Uh, because it speaks on love and the nature of love, right? And what's kind of ironic is, of course, 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't really talk about romantic love. So the fact that it's quoted so much in weddings is a little bit out of context. But anyways, we'll get there. But it gives closure and then it leads us into 13 where the apostle will share what he calls the most excellent of gifts or the excellent way to use these gifts. We will get there. But today our focus is here at the end of chapter 12. So Let's take a closer look at these verses. Now, usually I give you a couple points and then I give you headers and I give you like a little bit of introduction into that topic. But today, we're just going to break this down verse by verse. The reason being, I think there's a little bit of misunderstanding with some of these things. Uh, specifically the list of gifts, right? So I will walk through all of these gifts with you so you have a very Christian understanding, a biblical understanding of what these gifts actually mean because I think a lot of times we have terminology in the church. We don't really know how to define. Let me try to define those things for you. Verse 27, Paul makes it ever so clear in this verse that the entire analogy of the body right, that he was using, the image of the body, the human anatomy, In comparison right to whatever he's using as a metaphor everything that preceded this verse verses 1 to 26 was in fact as suspected in reference to the church and specifically in his context the corinthian church the church of christ as a whole right so he's saying church is like that of the body like a body and then he uses the example paul ties the two together to make no distinction to bring to light the obvious reality of the nature of his analogy The church is the body of Christ, and each member, individually, is a part of it. These are the very points Paul has been building in his analogy throughout this argument. That the church is one body, one entity, from one source, with one purpose. But that its composition is that of many members. Not everyone is an eye, not everyone is a foot, not everyone is a hand. The construct of the church is various, it's diverse but that only highlights its unity, right? Now, you are Christ's body, that statement there, it means this, as Gordon Fee writes, that collectively in their common relationship, relationship to Christ, of course, we talk about the doctrine of union with Christ as being the stem of our faith, through or salvation, through the Spirit, they are His one body. Right? Once again, this statement, now you are Christ's body, means collectively in our common relationship to christ our unifier through the spirit his active work in us we become one body we are one body we can't forget this we cannot forget this so you know we are territorial creatures by essence and so you know we talk about localities and churches right almost as if we talk about political lines right And so we have a Korean identity or a Chinese identity or some other identity. And then we have like a Canadian identity. And then we have like a territorial like Toronto thing. And then in Toronto, you have like Brampton people and Mississauga people. And then you have this school, that school. And we have all these like territorial definitions of our identity. But in reality, the church, right? Yes, you go to this church, but you are part of the church, right? You can't forget this. So... Let me put it this way no one actually goes to a small church right as believers we're really part of
1: the church the entire makeup of the body of christ and that includes at least by theory millions of people
0: by census like billions but let's just you know let's tone that down a little bit and let's go to millions okay that's still a lot that's a big body and like if that doesn't really like resonate I know we're different time zones across the world, but this singular day of the week, on the Lord's Day, you have hundreds of millions of people gathering, singing songs, just like you sang,
1: reading the Bible we just read from, and praying to the same God, right? That's an extraordinary thing. And we do that one out of seven days a week, every single week.
0: Pretty extraordinary. Can't forget that. And then the second part of the statement. We are individually members of it. This means, as Gordon Fee writes, that individually we make up the many parts. So we see the sum of the parts and we see the unity of the body of Christ. And this is what we celebrate. We like to celebrate this in modern context and culture, right? The unity of people, right? That's what we like to kind of herald, to be the banner. But I would also argue we need to also herald the diversity of the church as well. That we're all individuals that make up this entire body. So there's two components to this, two layers, if you will. Verse 28, Paul now lists famously a series of gifts, which he has already done in this chapter when we read that previously. And I promised you when we read that, that I would get to the definition of these gifts. And that's what we're going to do today. And like the first time, although the list is slightly variant, it's not too different his intent is not to set forth Paul's intent is not to set forth an exhaustive list or an extensive list nor is his intent to rank the gifts of some as some have claimed I've been to charismatic churches where they've said this is why the office of the apostle is the most important person in the church and they have like modern apostles right this is why prophecy is the is higher than this That's not Paul's intent. We can see that in the clearly, even a general reading, I think you can tell. This is not a ranking of the gifts. His list is simply what we call ad hoc or to serve a specific need, right? Too many people have taken this list too literally as instruction on the precise list of gifts that the Spirit offers as if it's our spiritual gift menu and their ranking of importance and value in the church. And that's why Paul diminishes tongues to the bottom so as to diminish the Corinthian issue. That's not how he's arguing for this. He is arguing for that, but he's not doing that to say like, this gift is better, so pursue this, right? That's not his point. It's easy to see how and why. Someone would read it this way, but it's clear in the total argument from 12 to 14 that that is not Paul's intent. Note, How Paul begins the list, he drives the point again that the origin of all of these gifts is unified and it is God, as God appoints them. Remembrance again again of the unity that our diversity stems from. The gifts are categorically organized, if you haven't noticed. The first three are ministries of the church, right? You have apostles, prophets, teachers. The next two are paranormal miracles and healings next two, are, the next two after that are acts of service right helpers and administrators and then he ends with the big gift in question the gift of tongues and let's examine each of these gifts and what each gift really means so quickly apostles this literally stems from the greek word apost- apostolia meaning to be called men of special authority who are entrusted by the lord himself to establish the church and its teachings in accordance, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, such men with such a gift will never exist again. I want to make that very clear. But men who carry on the apostolic teachings and the traditions will continue to be needed. Today, we call this person the pastor, right? Why, are, why then, you could ask the question, why would the apostles not exist anymore? The apostles, the role of the apostle was specific for its context and time and it would never be needed again. Why? The establishment of the church is only done once. Every company may continue to exist. There is only ever one founder of the company, right? So this is the founder, of course, is Christ. But Christ appoints his 11 disciples, of so 12 minus Judas, 11, and then adds on Paul, right? to The Apostles of the Gentiles. So you have 12 men entrusted with the establishment of the church Establishment, establishment meaning not just incorporating the church, so to speak, but actually teaching the church what Christ taught. So it's setting forth the traditions of the church. That's why Paul adheres to that. That's why when the New Testament canonized, right, when, when the New Testament was formed, right, the 27 books of the New Testament, one of the main criteria of being a New Testament book, like canonized, being considered uh, inspired word of God, it had, it had to have origins in apostolic tradition. It had to be directly from the teaching of an apostle. So written by Luke, inspired by Peter. Or it had to be written by an apostle himself. So that's why you see 60% of the New Testament is written by the apostle Paul. It had to be rooted in that. So there's other criteria to the canonization. I won't go into that. Maybe that's a seminar for another day. But part of the canonization of the New Testament, that was criteria. Apostolic tradition. That's the apostle. Today, we won't have that. Why? The church exists. We don't need more establishment. What we need are the next thing, prophets and teachers. Prophets, those who speak the truthful and faithful word of God to God's people so as to teach, correct, rebuke, edify, and guide the church. Uh, If you want to have like a specific biblical definition of this or guideline of what the A prophet is, and it's quite scary, read Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 to 22. This is the standard by which we hold the prophetic gift in office. Now, prophecy is misunderstood, especially a lot in the charismatic movements of today or the new age Christian movements of today. Uh, And prophets are looked to as like Christian fortune tellers. That's not entirely wrong. They do tell of the future of future events. But if you look at the wording of the minor and major prophets of the Old Testament, as well as, you know, Prophet Daniel. Daniel's a prophetic-ish person. And then you have, of course, uh, Samuel. These are men who preached and shared the word of God to God's people to pursue what? To lead them to what? Repentance. Faith and belief, right? Repentance and belief. These are the things that they were leading them to. So if you read Amos, for example, there's a lot of scary imagery there. This will happen to this and this and that, and all of these things will happen unless you repent and believe, right? So the call of the prophet is always teach to lead out of sin and lead towards God, to faith and repentance. Um, if it's simply, right, if you go to anyone, in, and I've experienced this, right, someone who's claimed to have the gift of Christian prophecy came up to me and was like, brother, I sense in you some kind of spirit uh, to shepherd people and i'm like thanks right that's wonderful right sure i mean if you want like christian horoscopes once in a while go for that right but that's not the purpose of it it doesn't lead me into faith and repentance it doesn't tell me anything about my sin doesn't tell me it doesn't warn me about you know like my actions right the role of the prophet is to preach the word of god faithfully and truthfully to lead god's people out of sin that is the gift of prophecy a lot of times i define it this way it is the gift to speak a word no other is willing to speak. Teachers, how do they differ from the apostles and prophets? Well, teachers, of course, teaching is the skill of teaching is involved in all three of these ministries. But the teacher, there were some in the church at the time, both then and now, who were obviously not really called as apostles or obviously not called to apostles. There's only 12 of them, but neither were they serving as prophets. They had regular instances of teaching in the church and teaching others, but did not serve as a designated authority figure of the church. They simply served the function and ministry of teaching uh, what was already being taught in the church and to convey it to others. It is interesting that Paul denotes this gift apart from the apostle prophet. So there is a distinction there, um, but maybe Paul's just trying to cover ground, right? And then miracle workers and healers. We're gonna tie these two together because they're essentially one thing. Again, Paul is simply addressing the presence of such gifts in the community at the moment of his writing acknowledges there are miracle workers there are healers and at the time there were we see this in the Bible miracle in the Christian sense strictly in the Christian sense I'm not talking about in other uses is not simply something paranormal right or something unexplainable although that's true it literally just means in its root word presence of God or intervention of God healings would fall under this category of miraculous work now, we certainly acknowledge and observe such miracles in the Bible. I mean, you read the Gospels and you see the ministry of Jesus. It's full of miraculous work, right? And we, so we certainly acknowledge the presence of these things and the reality of such things. But the necessity and reality of such gifts in today's context is an area of debate, right? So there are parts of the world where you'll go in much more, I guess you'll call spiritually saturated cultures and contexts, and they'll claim, right? They'll claim there are demons here and we healed them and exorcisms and miraculous work that's unexplainable to the North American context. North America, we're kind of skeptics. We don't really look at these things anymore and sense any kind of spirituality. We don't see value in these things, if at all, right? Miracle workers and healers, I think, are just not really a good way to preach the gospel to the North American context. Now, you're going to fight back and say, No, that's not true. If I saw a man who's in a wheelchair be blessed by a preacher and then rises from the wheelchair, I will believe and follow God faithfully. You're a liar. I know you're a liar. Why? Because the Bible has this. Jesus literally walked amidst us with people who were spiritually saturated. He healed numerous people. Not only did He heal people, He raised like two people from the dead. Literally a kid that was dying and Lazarus from the grave. People witnessed this and saw this and still crucified him. So to say, if I see a preacher pray for someone in a wheelchair and they will rise and I will believe and I will follow Jesus and you're following Jesus, A, for the wrong reasons and B, you're not really following Jesus. You're following the benefits of following Jesus. When in reality, the cost of
1: discipleship Is not, here's the prize, here's the prize, here's the prize. Although that's true. It's more, here's what you need to sacrifice. And that's your sin. See, the problem with miracles today is it won't lead you out of sin. So I don't think these things are necessarily imminent
0: or even dominant today or evident today because of these reasons. We're naturally skeptics. I had a conversation with an atheist once, and I asked him this question. He was asking me all these questions about our faith and theism and Christianity and other religions and etc. And then we got to this point, and, I, and he asked me this. Yeah, I, or I asked this question. I said, listen, I'll call him Bob. Bob, let me ask you this question. What would convince you of the Christian faith, of the reality of God, and of Jesus Christ? And this is what he said. If Jesus appeared to me in my room, and he talked to me, and he, like, like, literally, like, I could see him and, and talk to him. I would believe. And I said, well, Bob, if that happened to you, and then you went to your friends and told them, Jesus appeared in my room, and I talked to him, what would your friends say? You lunatic. <laughs> You're hallucinating. You're crazy. You're a psycho. The very thing that atheists claim that, they would be, that that would be the reason
1: for their faith is the very thing that they actually deny. The paranormal reality of our faith. This is why I don't think miracles are effective. You know what's effective in today's, in today's world? Faithful preaching of God's word. It's intelligibility. That is the arena we have now entered.
0: Helpers, this is the only instance of this term, helper or administrator, in the New Testament. It literally simply means to help or aid. It is likely a serving role of others that tends to their needs, whether that be mental, physical, or spiritual. We see an example of such services listed in Romans 12, another list of powers or gifts of the Spirit in verse 8. Now what about this word administrator? I had this person once who came up to me and it said, I think I have the gift of administration and here's here's the gift in 1st Corinthians 12. I think I have this gift and I said I think you're misunderstanding the term because this word although in English is administration this word is found also in Acts and Revelation and it has the modern meaning of I don't know if you you would have ever guessed this it has the modern meaning of pilot like an airplane pilot okay one who steers and others or directs others The sense of this term is one who guides, guides others in a certain direction. Such people with this gift were likely giving some word of guidance to others in the community to edify them, not exactly teaching them, but just simply steering them, nudging them in the right direction. This was the administrator. And then finally, tongue speakers. Best of the bunch, right? (laughs) Paul peculiarly places this gift as a standalone at the end of the list confirming that this list is not exhaustive nor intended to focus on the gifts themselves, but simply to represent the diversity. This last gift, as mentioned in verse 10, is at the center of the issue at hand. It stands alone to highlight it in the grand spectrum of the gifts as a whole. Paul's point, see how tongues is just one of many. These people were gifted, as we see in the book of Acts, the gift of speaking a language they didn't know, the controversy is not so much on the reality of such a gift, but the use of non-human tongues. If you look at the book of Acts, Peter actually like receives, like, or the disciples receive the gift of tongues. But they receive the gift of tongues of speaking human languages. So when, Paul, when Peter is preaching in Acts 2, right in front of the temple, he's preaching to all these like foreigners who've come and they're... They're from all over the place, right? They're merchants, sailors, etc. And they speak a variety of languages. Peter doesn't speak all these languages, nor can he speak them all at once. So he starts speaking, and the gift of tongues prolifically speaks um, or, or speaks through him. And these people, their ears are open to hear what Peter is speaking in their own tongue, right? So there's this exchange of the spiritual work, powerfully working to witness Christ. So those who don't speak the same language can hear it. This is extraordinary. Why? First and foremost, it's a reversal of the Tower of Babel instance, right? Where people were priding themselves to be like God, so God humbles them by splitting their languages. And now we see in the work of the Pentecost and the Spirit and disciples post Christ, in our union with Christ, that yes, now the Tower of Babel, that was a symbol of our pride, that's broken down, then the temple is rebuilt as Christ's body is broken for us, so that it's a reversal of that. So we can now speak the same language. Not literally, but that we're unified despite our language differences. It's an extraordinary theological reversal in Scripture. There's two extraordinary ones, I
1: mean. I won't get to the second one. But that's one extraordinary reversal we see in the book of Acts. Wait, wow, I just went on a tangent there. That was crazy. Okay, so... <laughs> So that's, that's kind of like what I want to convey to you,
0: right? To, that understanding, the unity of the church. But here, the gift of tongues that the Corinthians were not struggling with, but using as a source of pride is this angelic tongue, if you will, a non-human language tongue. And we hear this in the Pentecostal church today. We hear this in Korean Presbyterian churches today as well, right? The urge that Paul will give or the command that Paul will give in chapter 14, when we get there, we'll talk about it. Is that the use of these things remember we're still in the context of public gathering right the the corporate worship right church gathering
1: his command appears to be at least don't use this gift publicly unless you have an interpreter i don't know about you
0: okay my lifetime and i've lived a lot of decades now i have never met anyone any single person who has the gift of tongue interpretation you met anyone so then what does that tell you if god is giving you the gift of tongues but doesn't give you an interpreter but in his word says there should be an interpreter in public worship why why are we using this in public worship it's like clear as day in the text and i have no idea why this is happening it's peculiar to me it's like we want to be the corinthians (laughs) it's like it's like a really odd thing right I won't go into my like rants about like my experiences with Gifts of tongues, but that's my point. Verses 29 to 30. In classic Pauline rhetoric, Paul goes on yet another list of rhetorical questions that you should be used to this by now. And all these questions point towards the main teaching lesson of of course we're not mo- meant to function in this way. Of course we're not meant to function in exactly the same way with the same gifts, the same rules, the same things. The diversity is the expression of the unity. The answers to these questions are not only obvious, but Paul assumes his audience is in agreement with him. That's why they're written rhetorically. That's the point of rhetorical questioning, right? Thus, following along with his argument. But in light of this agreement, what Paul is drawing the church to is decisive conclusion. And the conclusion is this. If you agree with me, Corinthians, and if you don't think everyone shares in all the gifts singularly, then why would you apply a different logic or rationale when it comes to the gift of tongues? Why? Why are the Corinthians encouraging one another to seek the same gift, the gift of tongues? And for what purpose do you do that? Here's my theory. If we prop up the gift of tongues as this
1: like, high-level gift, right, then those who have it can claim what? High level status. Pride is at the issue here. Or pride is at the core of the issue here. Verse 31. Final verse. And this is an
0: extraordinary verse. Contemplated. How could I shorten this? I've shortened it down to just a couple statements. Hopefully the, the main point will get across to you today. Like any great classic movie. We end in verse 31 with a twist ending. How Paul lands on this imperative. Seek the greater gifts. Is... Odd. It is a mystery at first sight. Why? This is the whole time he's been saying there is no greater gift but then all of a sudden at the end he's like seek the greater gifts. We've spent extensive exegetical work on understanding all of this chapter to mean that no gift is more important than another and yet at the final verse where, where we find ourselves today landing is on a command by Paul to seek the greater gifts. How on earth are we to make sense of this? There are a few interpretive challenges to this final verse, but without boring your minds to death, I have come to rest on this understanding and I want to share it with you amidst a few options that I think are invalid. So let, let me break it down for you. If we look ahead at chapter 14, we will read this and in a few weeks we will get there. Paul writes, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. I know it's confusing. When we get to chapter 14, I'll tie all of this together. But Paul is not ranking the gift of prophecy over the gift of tongues. He even says, I hope you all do speak in tongues, right? But for your own private purposes, in in the case of a public setting, Paul is saying, what edifies most is the gift of prophecy. And the gift of prophecy already defined for you. It encompasses many things, but it encompasses this speaking the word of God faithfully, truthfully, honestly, without hesitation, to one another for the purpose of building up. We'll get into specifics when we get there. But so that we don't leave ourselves hanging today, the idea that Paul appears to be conveying to us today to us today is simply this: the greater gifts, if you will, quote unquote is actually related to this term prophecy. A gift he has mentioned today's text as a ministry of the prophet is one who speaks the truth of God and his word to others for the purpose of edification and building up. Now in contrast to this gift is this gift of tongues, which without an interpreter in the public arena is not edifying, it is not public discourse. Paul's intention is then to give the imperative, seek gifts like that of prophecy That benefit others why in light of chapter 13 because of love not gifts that benefit your reputation don't seek personal gain but the gain of others by seeking the gifts that will allow you to serve others the most his idea in today's passage ends with verses 29 to 30 which act as a conclusive rhetoric for the previous verses but this last verse is a transition into paul's ultimate conclusion on this topic of spiritual gifts That we will read later in chapter 14 but he will get to that conclusion after teaching and reminding us of one important point that is once again and you've heard me say it a million times in first corinthians the great virtue of the christian faith is love it is love paul will explain the more excellent way in first corinthians 13 With a focus on love, not the gifts themselves, the gifts are merely ways we can express and receive love from God and love to one another. They are the containers, and what is in the container is love. It's far more important than what the container actually is. A shop full of barrels enrich not unless full of commodities. My conclusion for you today is then this. Where we find ourselves is a closure to one section of this argument, and then a lead-off into another. What we glean is that Paul's emphasis consistently throughout this entire book has been what? His concern for the Corinthians to maintain the primary virtue of love in all that they do. He is driving them away from self-love into selfless love. A love that is so countercultural that a demonstration of this love in any life, in any time, alone is enough to turn heads, create opportunities to witness Christ gospel brothers and sisters I would be guilty of ignorance to not then ask all of you this are we men and women of God's love or are we men and women who are in love with ourselves I would be irresponsible as your pastor to not urge you as Paul did for the Corinthians to be more than you are and certainly more than the world is that is to be what lovers of God lovers of others we said this and expressed this in our mission statement Before and above loving oneself. I'm reminded today of one of my favorite all-time movies. It's called Life is Beautiful. This is an Italian film released in 1997, which went on to be nominated for seven Academy Awards, winning four of them, including a nomination for Best Motion Picture. They didn't win it, but it was nominated, even as an international film. This is, if you will, Parasite before Parasite. It was written, directed by, and starred by the Italian legendary actor-director Roberto Benigni. This film takes place in Italy during the Second World War and follows the story of a Jewish-Italian man and his family. He ends up in a concentration camp split from his wife and daughter with his only son. But the love this father displays for his son is beyond description. I don't want to completely ruin the movie for you, but I will completely ruin the movie for you. If you don't know what happens at the end of World War II, you're weird. In hopes of preserving his son's innocence, joy and hope in his life, he does not want his son to live a life knowing that he is hated and that there are racists after him. He tells his son a lie. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not encouraging lying here, but he does lie to his son. He tells his son that this whole world war thing is just a massive game that everyone is playing. The whole world is in on it. And what does he tell him? At the very end, in this concentration camp, he says, if they win, if they survive this concentration camp game, there's a great prize at the end. He goes to great lengths to do this, to hide the reality from his son, because he loves him so much. He doesn't want his son to grow up in a dark world of racism and hatred for his Jewish heritage. He protects his son from the evils of the world, because if they are to die, he wants his son to die happy. Caught in a concentration camp, this father volunteers to translate the German troops' orders, not knowing any German himself. He, he just makes it all up to make it seem like to his son, like the whole thing is just a game. So the German soldier goes up and says, you'll wake up at you know, 6 a.m., you will do this, you will show up for this, wear your armbands, blah, blah, blah. And all he says is, okay, these are the rules of the game. And it just translates it completely wrong. Now you can imagine the other Jewish people in that concentration camp are just bewildered at what this man is saying. So that's what he does for him. His love for his son, to love and protect him, to build him up, to hope for a better future for him, drove
1: this father to do everything he could do. The most loving thing he could do for his son. Okay, I won't ruin the end. I'll leave that as a mystery for you. I think you should watch the end. It is extraordinary, the end of this
0: movie. But love is a powerful thing. It can do powerful things. It can drive us to do crazy things. None of us will die perfect. You've already failed at that. None of us will die having done nothing wrong. You've already failed at that. But I hope the lasting memory to those around you will be that you were a man or a woman of love. That we loved God that we love to neighbor. Let's
1: pray and reflect on what God has taught us today. Take a moment, and then we'll, we'll respond in song.